0: All right, open your Bibles to Mark 6. There is a universal spiritual principle that you need to know that is vital to our Christian walk. God blesses those who believe and trust in him. I want you to think about that for just a moment. God blesses those who believe and trust him. Now, everyone wants blessings. That's pretty natural. You'd be weird if you didn't want blessings. But not everyone, even not every Christian, fully believes or trusts in God. Christians say they believe him. We claim to trust him. But let's be honest, that's not always the case. I think we can admit that there are times, there are circumstances when we make this claim But then we really don't trust or believe him like we should. Let me give you some examples. Bob and Angela are Christian parents of a couple of rowdy teenage boys. Both the boys have problems. Teenage boys have problems. But one of them, let's call him Jonathan, is having most of the problems. He's having trouble in school. Maybe it's socialization. Maybe it's academic. It doesn't matter. Choose whatever teenage boy problems you want. It doesn't matter. Jonathan's having problems. And the parents know the Bible talks a lot about Christian parenting. A lot of information that they can gather, data they can glean from the Bible. But they're not particularly interested in even approaching Jonathan's difficulties. They know they can talk to people in the church, but they haven't done that either. They're hoping if they don't mention it, if they ignore it, it will just go away on its own. How do you think God is going to bless that decision? Roger and Veronica are an older couple. Their kids are grown and out of the house, but they've been having problems, difficulties with their finances When their children were young, they spent everything they had. In fact, they borrowed a lot of money so they could just keep up with the other families around them, including vacations they could not afford. Now that their children are out of the house, they're struggling to make ends meet. They have no savings. And recently, Roger got laid off from his job, and now they're in real difficulty. They know the Bible teaches the importance of being responsible with what the Lord provides, but they haven't done that for a couple of decades now. They're kind of stuck at this point. They don't know what to do. So they're asking God for wisdom and asking people close to them for help, or they're thinking about doing that. How do you think God is going to bless them in their situation? Crystal is a teenage girl who's not getting along with her parents. She's disobedient. Her grades are slipping. And recently she's been hanging out around people from her school who she knows her parents would not like her to do. And just recently a classmate asked her to come over and, and just hang out together. But this included a bunch of things that were sinful. She knew it was wrong. How do you think God is going to bless Crystal? Now, I'm just going to tell you, I have a thousand of these. Should I go on? If I spend enough time working through all these fictional stories, you'll start to say, wait, I think he's talking about me. I'm not, but it could be because I think at some point, even in my own life, I can identify with Crystal and with Roger and Veronica. I can can identify with Bob and Angela. I identify with all these people, change the names, put my name there. I I identify because I think these are problems we've all struggled with. We all struggle through. These are spiritual issues. And I think at some point when we have our spiritual problems, instead of fighting against them, instead of really getting help for them, our tendency is to hide or ignore or even mislead others Into thinking they are not there. But God knows. He knows. And He blesses those who believe and trust Him. Bob and Angela are not believing and trusting God about their parenting. And Roger and Veronica are not believing and trusting God about their finances. And Crystal is not believing or trusting God how she responds to her parents. And if you think about this long enough, you you could say, I believe and trust God, but is he really going to lead me to the right spouse? Will Will he lead me to the wrong career? What about college that I attend? What, what about these jobs in front of me? Will God lead me to the right place? W- what about my children? Will he teach me how to train up my children so they follow after him? Will he put me into hopeless situations? Will he take all the joy out of my life? Will he lead me? leave me with impossible decisions? Well, I ask you, is God, God a God who when you ask for a fish, gives you a snake? When you ask for bread, does he give you stones? No. So why is it we struggle so much to believe and trust him? I want his blessings, but but sometimes I'm not sure if I should completely trust him. What kind of relationship is that? What kind of disciple does that make us out to be? We start to sound like the 12 disciples, don't we? But let's be honest about ourselves. It's not always the big things either. Sometimes we struggle to trust the Lord with day-to-day decisions. We, we question his wisdom in personal things, especially when they what he wants differs from what we want. How often have our prayers been to the Lord? Okay, Lord, give me this. And not, okay, Lord, do whatever it is you want to do in my life. If we're going to be his disciples... And discipleship is kind of one of our core values, right? Then we have to say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. In whatever it is. How often, like those men, those businessmen in James chapter 4. We get up one morning and we just say to ourselves, like a businessman would, you know, I think I'm going to go into such and such a city. And I think I'll buy and sell and get gain. And we're relying on all of the wisdom we've accumulated in business. We're relying on that that, uh, education we received. Maybe that MBA from a major university. We're relying on our experience and background in business. And so it makes sense. The city is, is a city open for business. I should go there. I should take my product and sell it there. I'll make a lot of money. And after all, that's what businessmen Or want to do. It makes sense. But we should say, if the Lord will. But how often is that really not at the top of our thinking process? Because in the reality of our Christian experience and existence, we don't believe him completely. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. It influences every decision you make in life. For the teenager who's facing, you ever thought about teenagers? They they have it hard. I mean, I'm not talking about today's teenagers. Teenagers have had it hard for centuries. It's those are the rough years. Do you realize the decisions teenagers make uh, at the end of their teenage years? What career should I should I choose? Maybe I should go into typewriter repair. <laughs> I'm going to become a, a farrier. You know what a farrier is? He shoes horses. I, I think I'll do that. That sounds like a great business. I'm going to get into horseshoe repair. You, they have to choose a career. They get to choose a spouse. That's coming. It's on, it's on the horizon. The next few years. You, you, and, and you think that's easy? That, that's hard. You think you know this person you're marrying. You really don't. <laughs> And you don't find that out for about 25 years. <laughs> right? Got to choose a career. Got to choose a spouse. Got to choose a college. If you're going to go to college, are you going to go to college? You're not going to go to college. If you go to college, what are you going to major in? All these choices. And they just kind of throw them at teenagers. <laughs> at, at, at probably at your time of life when you're the wisest, right? <laughs> these are hard. So are you going to say, I believe and trust in God or not? Or or you have, you know, you get married and you've got your career and things are kind of going well. You're just getting started off in life and it's a struggle. Those early years are a struggle. They are. They're hard. It's kind of hard to get going. Once you get going, it's a little easier. In fact, if you grow up in a home where your family got going, you know, then you go off in life. You're not used to that struggle because your parents haven't been struggling like you're about to struggle for a long time since they were your age. And the truth is you get into that and then you have a baby or two or five or 10 or however many babies you have. And then you realize I have to parent these babies. They don't parent themselves. <laughs> and I'm not talking about diaper changes and burping and all that feedings. And I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actual parenting. And you discover that parenting doesn't begin at age you know, zero. Uh, uh, it, it's not like you go to Sears or JC and pick up you know here's my uh, zero to eight week months parenting outfit or, or packet. And then there's the uh, 18 to 36 months packet. It, it, it's not like that. Every child's different. Every child has individual specific needs and it's kind of difficult to parent. And then and then you get into midlife and your career, is either taking off or falling apart, but you're getting into midlife and your children are, are grown or they're almost grown. They're about to leave the home. And now you've got a whole bunch of new problems coming. Your parents are aging. I'm in the marrying and burying phase of life. This is the t- t- term I've given it, right? Because uh, my parents are still living, praise God. But my dad, as he says, doesn't buy green bananas. I mean, it's, you know, when you get to be in your 80s, uh, uh, you know, you want to be able to eat those bananas. <clears throat> you don't want them left behind. So this is what he says. Of course, he's been saying it for about 15 years. But uh, uh, I mean, you, you understand. It's the marrying and burying phase. And then and then you get out of that. And then, you know, other people, are, they're in your burying phase. Uh, you, you, you get to be where my parents are at. <clears throat> my dad recently sent us a picture of his headstone. That's a blessing to see. Thank you. Thanks, Pop. It's a, it's a beautiful headstone. We've, we bought him a little, uh, a little picture frame where you do digital pictures. Becky says, I'm going to put that on there so he has to look at it every once in a while. It's nice. It's Walker, mom, my, my, my mom, my dad, my mom, birthdays, you know, and then the space to etch in the other part later. Yes, that's wonderful. All of those phases of life, ladies and gentlemen, require you to believe God, to trust him. And and so it's not just for salvation. It's it's for more than that. So, excuse me. We must approach this by saying, Lord, your will be done. This brings us to point number one in our story. We must respond in faith to Jesus. This means responding to his words. It says here, Jesus went from there. Mark's continuing his story. And notice where he arrives into his own country. His disciples are with him. And it's now the Sabbath day. And as Jesus was wont to do, he went to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him, all those listening are astonished at his teaching. And they begin to ask questions. Where is this guy from? How do he get all this wisdom? What's with this? Now, the first thing you find here is that Jesus was a preacher. He was a rabbi in verse one. It states that he had disciples following him. So he's one of those special teachers who instructed his disciples in his doctrines. But he also taught the people in the synagogues. Verse two. This is kind of a regular occurrence for Jesus though it's going to become less regular as he goes along. The Jews in the synagogues are not going to like what he has to say. But he often preached in the synagogues in the early part of his ministry. And then he refers to himself in verse 4 as a prophet. So he's a preacher of sorts. He's going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now notice where he's preaching. Verse 1 says, in his own country. And you kind of get this sense that Jesus has He's been preaching at all these other places and he's coming home and now he's preaching to people familiar to him. You see this? He's preaching. He's among his own people. He's in Nazareth. He's in his own synagogue. This would have been the synagogue he attended as a boy. This would have been the place where he heard other people expound on Isaiah and Deuteronomy and those big Old Testament books. This is where he would have learned those books. He would have learned those verses. He would have read the Psalms there. And his own family members are also present. The audience mentions his earthly brothers by name. And it's important to realize later that two of these are going to become leaders in the New Testament church. James, his brother, is going to become the pastor of the Jerusalem church and probably the author of the book of James. And Jude, his brother, writes the the epistle of Jude. We don't know about Simon, and Joseph is the name for Joseph, name for his earthly father, Jesus' earthly father, though Joseph was not truly his father. You understand what I'm saying. also mentions here he had sisters. So here we have Jesus. He's a preacher. He's standing up to preach, and he's preaching to an audience familiar with him. And notice they heard his message. Look again at verse 2. Look right down to the text. What does it say? They listened to him. Now, this is not the listening that when we think of listening, we really want, especially as parents, right? We tell our children, you need to listen to me. Sometimes I would get forehead to forehead with my son. You need to listen to me right now. All right? Our eyes would be very close, and we would be talking to one another because I had to make sure I was getting through. I didn't have that problem with my daughter I would look at her and I'd talk and I could tell she was listening, paying attention. But with Aaron, I had to really get down there. You need to listen right now. okay? I know you're doing some sort of complex problem or you're in. You've created a world with its own language and people and all that. But you need we need to get back. Right. Okay. And I wanted them to listen. Notice here they're listening, but they're not listening. This doesn't mean they have an obedient heart. They're not open to what God is teaching. Rather, they're hearing him physically so that auditory system is working, right? The sound waves are coming and entering in the ear canal and hitting the cochlea and all those little parts in the eardrum and boom, 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 whatever it does, the eardrum. I guess it doesn't actually drum, but you know what I'm saying. All that's going on inside the ear, and, and then it's hitting the auditory nerve, and that's going to the brain, coding and decoding and encoding, and all this is going on. And you go, yes, I understand what you're saying. That's taking place, but what's not happening is any of them saying, I actually believe this because it says they're amazed at what he's saying, and it's not a good amaze. This is the driving down the highway and slowing down to see the car wreck, Amazed. This this is surprise when something out of the ordinary occurs. But this is not an open wide your mouth, God says, and I will fill it. This is not the heart that's open to the word of God. These are not people who want to be sanctified by the truth of scripture. So they're hearing his words. But they're not responding to his words. But faith in Jesus is not just responding to his words. Second, it's letter B. It's responding to his works. Look again at verse 2, second part. How are such mighty works wrought by his hands? Jesus is not just a preacher. He's a healer. By the way, I find it. There's a contrast here. I think Mark is mentioning that's pretty interesting, right? Because what was Jesus's job? It said, is this not the carpenter? We would use the expression a handyman, a fix-it man. He, he's a guy who, if your if your washer dryer is broken, you call him over and he gets underneath and tinkers underneath there and fixes it, replaces whatever little parts need to be replaced, charges you three or four thousand dollars for it, and then goes his way in, in his Porsche. Right? That's that's how that works because you know you can do IT, but you can't fix your washer dryer. I, I understand. I mean, you know, it, this is this is difficult for us. And so these people come in and they will fix it. Well, Jesus was a fix-it man. How often do you think he went to the synagogue to fix things? How many times do you think he went in there to actually uh, mess around with parts of the building? Because he was the guy in town you called when you had that problem. See, he's a handyman. But notice here, he's healing people with his hands. So now he's doing something different, isn't he? Now, he's actually putting his hands on people. People are actually, even as Mark said earlier, touching his clothes and they're being healed. He's rising people from the dead. He's able to do these. And I think the contrast is interesting because they're looking at Jesus from a physical perspective. You're just a handyman. How is it you're able to do all of these things with your hands? But the works of Jesus are evidence of his messiahship that's what jesus is doing he's saying if you will not believe my words john's gospel tells us believe the works that i've done among you the old testament messiah would be one who would come and would preach a, a message like jesus preached but he would be also one who would come and do the works that jesus did he's saying do you believe my works jesus performed the acts the Messiah was to do. And my friends, we look at these people and we say, how could you not believe this? But, in all honesty, we should ask that question to ourselves. This is what faith is. A right response to what God has revealed. And in this case, the revelation is both the words and works of Jesus. But have we responded rightly to that do we believe his words? Do we believe and trust the Lord? Do we trust his Holy Spirit who comes alongside us and reminds us of what we've learned from his word? Do we, t- we trust that the scriptures are sufficient in everything? Do we believe that? Recently, I was finishing the book of Leviticus in my devotions. And I got to the section. It's, it's kind of a difficult read. But I've got to the section where Moses is giving the law to Israel, and he's talking about the year of Jubilee. And, you know, if you go out and you make yourself a servant to someone else, at the year of Jubilee, you get to be released. And what happens if you sell your property? And if it's in the city with a wall, the property is sold forever. But if it's in a city that doesn't have a wall, then the year of Jubilee, you reclaim that property. And this in the place that's outside the wall, that would be not a home but more like a farm so you never lost your farm every 50 years at the year of jubilee that farm would come back to you and i'm reading all of that and then and then jesus says okay and every 7 years you let your farm just lay fallow and in the 6th year i'll give you enough for the 6th year and the 7th year and into the 8th year there's the promise and God makes this command. When you come into the land, this is what you're to do. Do you know how many times Israel obeyed that command? Do you know how many times? How many of you think they obeyed it even one time? Raise your hand. Anybody? One time. Just nobody's going to give Israel the benefit of the doubt here that they obeyed it even one time. Not Nobody? Come on. One time. They didn't obey it one time. Here's what I suspect's happening, you know. You're reading through the Bible and they're reading through, okay, can't eat pigs. That's it's too bad, but I can't eat pigs. No barbecue. Okay, got that. Check. Can't eat shellfish. Again, too bad, but okay, check. You know, they're going through these things, and you know, here's all the Levitical rules, and they they've got all of this, and they got it all down. And by the way, let your land go fallow every seven years. I don't give you enough in the sixth year for the sixth and seventh and part of the eighth year. And you'll still be eating on that sixth year in the eighth year when, you're, when the crops come back. And ha- and you say, yeah, you know, that's good. But but he's speaking contextually to, uh, you know, we should we, maybe we should take and spiritualize that. It's not really fallow. We're going to let our ground go fallow. It's kind of fallow in some spiritual sense, and so you know, um, I'm just telling you. Somewhere along the line, they had to say no. I just don't think I'm going to do that. And and as I'm as I've got this big stone, this big snarky stone in my hand, ready to throw it to at all the Israelites for not obeying his word. How often in our life have we come across the words of Jesus and just said, oh, "I don't think so." I don't don't think I'll believe him in those words. No. More often than we care to admit. Do you believe his works? You say, well, I try to believe his words, pastor, but do you believe his works? I, I know that there aren't people going around. Well, there are people going around putting their hands on people to heal them. I, I saw, the only reason I do Instagram is for the memes. I mean, there's a lot of trash memes, but some of the memes are fantastic. And it was one dog with his hand, the paw, and, and it was a bulldog kind of thing. And his, eye, his eyes look closed because they're fat faces. And he has paw on the nose of another dog. And the guy wrote, when I left my TV on the Evangelist channel all day, <laughs> this is what I come home to. And the other dog just sitting there in the you know falling in. You know, I know there are people going around, you know, healing people. They're not being healed, but they're healing people, okay? But there's nobody really going around healing people. So let's, we understand that. But God still does miracles, does he not? He still answers prayer, does he not? He still saves souls, does he not? So why is it we don't pray for God to save souls like we should? Why is it? Mom, dad aren't saved, but we've just kind of neglected to pray for them. They're not even on the prayer list at church. Why is it that we have these issues in our life and we don't want anybody to pray? What in the world is that about? Or or it's personal. We don't want anybody to know our struggle. So it's an unspoken prayer request. Friends, this is the place where there are no unspoken prayer requests. Or there shouldn't be. We shouldn't be embarrassed to say, hey, I'm struggling with this spiritual issue. Pray for me so that God will answer this prayer. This is where we learn how to parent our children. This is where we pray for each other's children. This is where we do it here. And, And this you must believe. But why is it we do not believe it? Why is it we don't follow like we should? We question whether God will ever do it again. We wonder if the Lord is still powerful. Can he still do it? Now, I give all of you this because there's a reason. This is important. Why is this important? And This is getting us to point number two. It's it's because God often chooses to limit himself according to our faith or faithlessness in him. This is point number two. God often works according to our faith. I'm not saying he only works according to our faith because sometimes God is so merciful to us he works in spite of our faithfulness. Sometimes we're out of the boat sinking and looking at the world around us and God still saves us, right? I mean, that happens. But rejecting his message, ladies and gentlemen, this is a rejecting his message is tantamount to rejecting him. You understand? that? When they said, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon are, are not his sisters with us? And they were offended at him. So Jesus replies, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, among his own family, and in his own house. Jesus' message was rejected for personal reasons. He wasn't a formally trained rabbi. This was a big stumbling block for the Jews. Jesus was not like their normal rabbis, trained in Jewish law. Not only that, his parenting, or his parentage rather, was suspect, suspect. Notice, the audience doesn't mention his Father Joseph, why? Why is he called by Mary? Because it because they're saying we're not really even sure about what happened in this situation. And his family is insignificant. they, they know him. He comes from a large family in town, but it was a family of nobodies. aren't his brothers and sisters here? I mean they, they sit in the back. I mean they're, they're just they're here. You know, the sisters are in the nursery taking care of the kids. Um, They're not really that important. He's rejected by those around him because he wasn't formally trained and because his family line was suspect and because his family itself was insignificant. But he was personally rejected by those closest to him. Do you see this? He was rejected by those in his country. Mark uses the term patrice, country. And I think there's a significance here because Mark is kind of theologically setting us up now for what the gospel of Mark is going to show later, that the country does reject him as they crucify him on a cross. These Jews in Nazareth are just a microcosm of the larger Jewish community who will crucify Jesus. So you' you're kind of seeing that sense here. Mark is setting up this final rejection. He is He is rejected by his country. He's rejected by his family. They, they didn't believe in him, right? They thought he was crazy. We found that out earlier in the in the gospel. They show up and they want they think he's beside himself. He's out of his mind. His own family is rejecting him. These people, these who would become, by the way, disciples of Jesus later on, his own half-brothers, these are rejecting him at this point in his life. His own family, his own country, they rejected him. Those who were closest to him. And because of that, let her be, the father does not bless those who reject his son. He could do, verse 5, no mighty work there. Yep, so he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. He marveled. D- do you see the contrast here? They're astonished at his preaching and his works, his, mess- his, his words and his works. They're astonished. He's astonished at their faithlessness. W- which astonishment is more important? He's just wowed. And so Jesus chose to limit his miracles in that community. Some of the most egregious cases were left undone. We can only imagine there were blind people there who needed to see. There were lame people there who needed to walk. Deaf and dumb and diseased. Demon-possessed people. Like the demoniac from Gadara, the woman with the issue of blood, the 12-year-old girl who's dying on a bed. This is going on in Nazareth all around. And yet God is saying, I can do no work here because you all have no faith at all. Mark is explaining the, the importance of believing in Jesus in order to see the mighty works of God done in their midst. And only a few of the sick were healed. But Jesus says, I can do no mighty works in that community. Do do you understand, folks, that Christianity in America is dying? And it's not because the society is changing. It's not because Satan somehow figured out with Charles Darwin a means and method of changing the way society looks and thinks at life. It wasn't that. Satan hasn't come up with a brand new tool To somehow turn people away from God. Society is changing and becoming less Christian. Because Christians are not believing in God like they should. The mighty works of God aren't done in our midst. They're not done in the midst of our communities. Because the sad reality is Christians just don't believe it happens anymore. I read stories of what God has done in ages past, throughout church history. And sometimes those stories are so unbelievable because we haven't seen them in our lifetime. You read about, I want you to stop and think about this for just a moment. Billy Graham went to New York and he filled Madison Square Garden for six straight weeks in the summer of like, 1967, somewhere around in there. It was before I was born, but somewhere right in there. He filled that arena. That's where the Knicks play, okay? The New York Knicks, they play, it's right there, actually just a few blocks north of where one of our missionaries, Bill Jones, has his uh, the, the, the mission there, the manor house and the mission. Bill gets about... 40 to 70 people, maybe more than that, to come on a Sunday. They come for food during the week, but on Sunday they have a church service in the afternoon and he'll get people to come. But it's not Madison Square Garden being packed out. But folks, this was only, what, 70 years ago, 60 years ago that this happened? It wasn't that long ago. That there were so many Christians in our country that in the South we had blue laws. Prohibition. There was a change to the Constitution of the United States because Christians in America, right or wrong, said people shouldn't drink alcohol. They changed the Constitution. And now, near the school where I grew up and where I was educated, all around that school, there are gentlemen clubs, and you know what those are, popping up. We have in our community, right here in our community, a half an hour away, the Hindus are building a statue to the god of war. Their god of war. Folks, that's Satan himself. In in the south, in the Bible belt. Why? Because Christians stopped believing the Bible. It all became about church growth and about Uh, Influence, pastors wanted to be important people. I actually had a guy say to me recently, "You you ought to leave your church, and he wanted me to do something else. He said, because, and this was his quote, I have more influence than you do. Okay. Do you know what influence I have? I have all the influence God wants me to have. If he wants me to have more influence, I have more influence. You don't believe that? I mean, next Sunday, five thousand people could show up for church. We'd have problems, but it could happen. <laughs> when I used to church plant, when we were just starting out, I would tell people and say, "How many people come to your church?" Because that's the only question they would want to know. How many people come to your church? I'd say six hundred. Wow! But only thirty come at once. That's they were, they, you have to hear the end of that, yeah? Because I'd have five five hundred and seventy people that week say, "I'll be there Sunday, Pastor Preacher. I'll see you Sunday." Of course, I never saw them again. Every week, lots of people, I'll be there new, And half of those 30 people didn't come back. We'd have 15 new people. Really, those first four months were weird. But it's all because people don't believe the Bible. Christian people don't believe the Bible. You you think this isn't isn't actually how it works? Go back and look at the history of the church in Europe. And and when and when Christian liberalism, theological liberalism arose where they questioned whether or not Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. They came up with something called the J.E.D.P. And they said, no, it was written hundreds of years later by editors. Moses may have written parts of it, but most of it was really written by these other people. And you could figure it out by by reading in the Hebrew the way they refer to God and and, and sometimes the way they write, so there, you have the, 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 um, the Jehovah texts and you have the Elohim text and you, and you have the Deuteronomic texts and the priestly texts and, and but it wasn't written by Moses. Even though Jesus said it was, it wasn't written by Moses. And people denied the scripture was written by God. That came out of Europe in the 1800s. Where are they today? Churches are now apartment complexes, bowling alleys, bars. One of the greatest churches in the United States in the early 20th century in New York City is now a bar. The man who preached there was one of the greatest preachers in the early 20th century. He's dead. And his church is a bar where people go to get drunk and pick up girls. And that's where it is. And why is it that way? It's not because Satan's coming with a new tool. It's because Christians like ourselves just decided, I don't believe, really believe what God said here. So I'm not going to follow it and I'll follow. I want to be saved. I'll follow that. And and I, and I think it's important that I follow some of these things. I get that. But even most of that is for some selfish reason. But how often do we come to a place of scripture and we, and God's Holy Spirit reaches out and says, this is for you. And we say, yep, that's for me. I need this. But Christians, let's be honest. Oftentimes, we just let it go by. We're like the grade school boy sitting on the banks of the Mississippi, no shoes or socks on, piece of grass in his teeth, watching a log just kind of go by, just kind of go down river. And that's the truth of God. He just goes by and we let it go. And so God says, fine, I won't work. I'll just hold back my hand a blessing. And how many people even look at something like this and they come and say, well, I want God's blessing. And they're thinking money, they're thinking worldly stuff. Their unbelief in him was irrational. It harmed them more than it harmed him. My friends, if you reject Jesus's words or works, you are kind of rejecting him. And I don't mean for salvation, but you're rejecting him in your daily life. And and then I think, you know, this is why I feel like I would have been a pretty good disciple. I could have been one of the 12. You know, I know Peter said, don't wash my feet. I guess I could have said that to Jesus. Nathaniel said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> yeah, I can see myself saying that. Andrew said, well, here are some loaves and some fish, but what are these among so many? How many times have we said that when our car died? Or, or when we got sick? You know, God can do it, but, you know, I mean, I'm really sick this time. You know, it was before it was bad. It was walking pneumonia. Now it's lying down pneumonia. I understand there's not lying down pneumonia. You catch my grip here. I'm being a little facetious. Philip said, you know, Jesus, all of this has been great. You know, the last few years have been wonderful. I loved it every minute. It was good. But could you just show us the Father, please? It's kind of what I've been waiting on. I've been, I had this question. I raised my hand back in year one. You didn't call on me. And so, you know, I've been thinking at some point I'm going to get my question in. So finally, I now have my opportunity. Would you show us the Father? And it would satisfy me. And Jesus said, I've been with you all these years and you didn't see the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. I think I could have said that. And Thomas, call. How many of us are really doubting Thomas's. You know, I know it talks about how to parent my children, but that doesn't really fit with how culture does it today. I know it talks about the importance of living the Christian life in a certain way, but that's not even how most Christians do it. I've got, I've got a thousand applications running through my head right now. And some of them I'm scared to pick on because I haven't thought it through all the way. <laughs> I'm thinking about how people do church. I'm writing a paper right now, for a dissertation for another doctoral degree. I don't need more. It's a long story. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing anyway. And and the, I'm writing it on these people from Australia who are saying the Sunday sermon, not plural, sermon is insufficient to disciple people. So this is what I'm, I'm writing it on this topic. I'm writing against that argument and one of the parts of it that I have I don't write on because it's not really super important is the fact when they say sermon they mean one and do you, do you realize that at the beginning of the church the church was mostly made of slaves they got up in the morning they went to church before they went to work and they heard the word of God preached and then they went to work all day and then they went to church later that night after work was over, and they had church in the evening. And so we follow that pattern, not because God says you have to do it, but because that's kind of what Christian people do. You have church services on Sunday, and you, do you know what? The truth is, most churches in America don't do that anymore. We are in, it used to be, when I started this church 20 years ago, we were in the five percentile of churches who have a Sunday evening service. We're in the one percentile now. And now I actually have pastor friends saying, I'm not even sure if I'm going to have church on Sunday. Even though I know what it says. Yeah, I know. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16. Okay. You want a contemporary example? Andy Stanley, who is a false prophet and a heretic and probably an unbeliever. Okay. There you go. That's my view. Andy Andy Stanley got up last Sunday in his church and said, the LGBT community in his church, they have more faith than he has. And I thought that may actually be true. And then he said, and I know what Leviticus says, and I know what Deuteronomy says, and I know what Romans says. He says, I know what God says, and I just don't care. Friends, that's the problem right there. He doesn't believe the Bible, he doesn't believe Jesus. And maybe in the damning of his own soul, I don't know. I'm not his judge. God's his judge. But if this is what churches are doing, then are we shocked? when When two things are going on, there's no real power of God happening, but we think there is because there are all these mega churches that are around us That's just a bandwagon argument. I learned in college freshman writing class that bandwagon arguments are are specious and false, just because everybody's doing it doesn't make it right. In fact. As my grandmother would would have said to me, just if everybody's doing it, it probably isn't right, Matthew. We sometimes do it too. Let's Let's just be honest with ourselves. We sometimes do it too. Right here in our church, we do it. I do it. We do it too. But the words of God will have a lesser impact in your life if you do not believe or obey them. And the works of God will be less if you do not recognize it's His. Handy work. He's doing it. And unfortunately, sometimes our hearts are hard, just like Pharaoh. And even when the magicians say to him, it is the finger of God. Mm -hmm. Who cares? I just want the gnats to go away. That's all I want. Friends, I want God to work college park I I love the church I hope God works in a thousand other churches I hope he saves lots of souls through them but I want him to work here but he will not work in us if we do not trust and believe him we must do that let's pray father thank you for the word of God today thank you Lord for how much you bless us help us Lord To see the word of God as it is. Your words. And help us to believe them and obey them and trust them. Help us to listen, not just with our physical ears. But with an obedient heart. Before I finish praying. Maybe God is speaking to you about some area of your life. Where you say truthfully, I know the words of God. Just haven't really been believing them. I haven't trusted them. I've been kind of fighting against God in in one area of my life. Well, I can can, uh, sympathize with you. I fight myself, my own unbelief, so many times. So maybe you're here this morning, and like that man who came to Jesus with his demon-possessed son, your cry to this morning is, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. If that's where you're at, I'd love to pray for you. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Anybody at all? Yes, 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 sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I'll pray for you. Who else? Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. I'm struggling in some of these areas. There's an area in my heart where I know what's true, and I'm just struggling to believe. Anybody else? Yes, I see. I see you. Yes. Thank you, young lady. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I see your hand. I'll pray for you. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. Lord, you know where our hearts are at right now. Sometimes we struggle to believe you. Help us, Lord, to do that, to believe in you with our whole heart. to love you, and to follow you, Lord Jesus. Whether it's in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, or the skies grow dark, and it's in the valley of the shadow of death. Help us, Lord, to follow you and believe you every step. In Jesus' name, amen.